The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. There's a book that was written in 1989 called Democracy and Its Critics. The renowned Robert Dahl is the author. In the book, he answers objections to critiques of democracy through a series of dialogues. One of them has always stuck with me because I hear it so often. The problem with democracy is it is not democratic enough. Many of the scholars who are featured on the democracy paradox have ideas or plans to make democracy more democratic. Many books, articles, and even podcasts focus on ways to reform or redesign institutions so they can become more democratic. For example, Ezra Klein has a very popular podcast. Every week he advocates for the Senate to drop the filibuster. So, sure, we can do that. But we are delusional if we believe democracy is simply one reform away from perfection. I invited Carolyn Hendricks, Selene Urkan, and John Boswell to join me because they examined democracy reform through a multidimensional lens. Rather than offering a single blueprint to redesign our institutions, they suggest we should continue to mend the damage in our existing framework. It is an achievable call to action where they raise the profile of some everyday heroes who have made positive contributions to repair the connections vital to democracy. Carolyn is an associate professor of public policy and governance at the Australian National University. Selene is an associate professor of politics at the University of Canberra. And John is an associate professor of politics at the University of Southampton. They are the authors of Mending Democracy, Democratic Repair in Disconnected Times. It's always interesting when my guests are in Australia, because it it works best if I call in the afternoon or evening so they can be reached the morning of the next day. This conversation, of course, had an extra wrinkle because John is in the UK. So we coordinated this call across three different time zones on three different continents. And whenever this many people are on on a podcast, I know it can be difficult to know who says what, when they're saying what. For that, I'm going to just apologize. But it, it was really necessary. Their work was a collaborative effort. Indeed, a work like theirs can be, can be nothing but collaborative. 
Their research is in many ways about collaboration. Our conversation will will help you understand some important concepts and theories about deliberative democracy. But it's also going to offer some real-world examples. I cannot wait for you to learn about the knitting nanas against gas. They call themselves NAG. There is so much I want to share right now. But it's best if, if I relax and just let you listen. So here's my conversation with Carolyn Hendricks, Selena Khan, and John Boswell. Carolyn, Selena, and John, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for having, Hi. Us. Thanks for having us. Hi, Justin. So the title of your book is Mending Democracy. What does this mean? What does it mean to mend democracy? So this, this idea of the metaphor of mending uh, came to us as we tried to bring a lot of rich empirical material together to try and make sense of what a whole range of different actors in our democratic system are doing to repair a number of weaknesses in the democratic system. So if we step back a bit and think about the actual metaphor, the underlining metaphor here is a fabric. And in this way we're using the, the fabric metaphor is to kind of imagine our democratic system as something that's intact and interwoven. But as we all know, there are severe weaknesses in our democratic systems all around the globe at the moment. And these weaknesses are not in just one part of that fabric. They are off, often all around the, the fabric of our democracy. And this is weakening the integrity of, of the actual material or the fabric. So that's the sort of underlining metaphor we're using in, in the book. And we're, we're kind of looking at three particular weaknesses in that fabric the language we use is also a sort of disconnect. So the one disconnect or, or weakness we hone in on is a the representative disconnect. And this is sort of a weakness between elected representatives and their constituents. We think this is a, a fundamental weakness in our contemporary democratic systems. The second one we look at is a, a disconnect in the public sphere, which is, is less obvious, but we all experience this polarisation or the division between citizens in our democratic systems. And then the third one is one um, that we also all experience, which is that fundamental sort of disconnect between citizens and, the, and the, the policy processes, the government services that we get, and that complex system of governance that most of us find impenetrable. So the book looks at, I guess, these, these weaknesses and, and what, what can be done to strengthen the democratic fabric around these particular weaknesses. And that's where the mending metaphor comes in, which is really to look at this idea of um, a sort of systemic approach to democratic repair, that we can't just have one fix here. We need a much more widespread approach to democratic renewal or democratic repair. And we found the metaphor of mending really worked for us because it is something that all of us can do. Mending is a craft, is a technique that people do traditionally in their own way, in, with their own resources, and that's the kind of way we're using mending. We're using it in a way to say, well, look, we all experience these weaknesses in our democratic system, and there's actually quite a lot that everyday people in our democracies can do to step in to strengthen these weaknesses. And we offer three different case studies to show how everyday citizens, how elected representatives, how community groups and even bureaucrats are actually taking these very small scale steps, which is really 
the approach to, to democratic mending that we look at. So it's a, it's a small scale and a celebration of these sort of iterative approaches to making our democracies work better. I thought it worked really well. I thought it was very refreshing because there's a whole cottage industry of books out there that look at ways to completely redesign our institutions because political scientists love to talk about institutions in ways that we can come up with new utopias or new new ways of, of establishing something completely different. And I do think that there's something incredibly important about looking at the people themselves and what we can do within a democracy. Because if, if democracy is government of the people, it's it doesn't start with the institutions the way they're designed. It starts with the people themselves buying in and being part of that. So if the problem isn't in the institutions, though, do you see the problem with the people or is it something that's just a, a disconnect between the people and the institutions? Yeah, really interesting. And really the, the cottage industry that you're talking about there. I think for us, that's one of the kind of sources of pushback or, or inspiration, really, is looking beyond this. When we talk about institutions in the book or, or reflect on that, partly it's about this, this idea that there's more to reform than institutional innovation or institutional tinkering. And I guess we're trying to speak to all those you know, very clever and passionate and engaged people who are interested in those ideas and in research like us, but also in the public engagement sector people in and around government and the nonprofit and NGO sector and so on who are interested in improving democracy and want to make our democracies better. And I guess we're saying, look, there's more to it than becoming interested in or, or following one particular recipe or one particular institutional remedy. So where I live in the UK at the moment, you kind of be forgiven for thinking that citizens' assemblies are the, are the only tool in the democratic reformers box. Whenever there's a problem if you want to restore trust or if you want to get over a policy impasse, this is, you know, reach for a citizen's assembly. And while, you know, we know that institutional innovations like citizen's assemblies or other kinds of mini publics, we know they can do wonderful things and they can be really exciting and interesting and, and all the rest of it, but they're far from the be all and, and end all. They can be kind of not well stitched into that fabric. They can lack connection to the broader systems. Uh, they can work across purposes to other kind of democratic practices. So, we're really interested in more in the, in the organic sort of grounded action and innovation that's happening out there uh, in the institutions as they already are, as they already exist. Because the other part of it, based really on our kind of philosophical kind of orientation that we come from, the kind of interpretive tradition, is that institutions aren't these immutable structures. And it's that relationship you were talking about there between people and institutions. So institutions aren't just things there that can't evolve and can't change. They do evolve and they do change as people work in and around them or, or with them or against them. That's what a lot of the, the kind of the rich stories and examples that we look at in the book, that's what they are, are looking at. We're looking at the kind of everyday actors, the, uh, the citizens and uh, activists and sometimes you know, administrators or, or politicians and what they're doing with the institutions. They're using the institutions that are already there and they're working with them or trying to reimagine them or work with them in ways that can better connect citizens with each other, better connect them with their representatives and, and better connect them with the policy process. So yeah, we can't just read off behavior from institutional settings. We see that everyday actors, they can capitalize on or, or colonize existing institutions and bend them to their will. The metaphor of mending just really hits home for me because so many things in society have been specialized 
we've seen that going on since early in the 20th century, that different jobs, different positions, different things are specialized. Certain things I think are important for people to continue to do themselves. Raising children and your family, that is not something that you specialize out and you have somebody take care of. I mean, you might have somebody watch your children. Uh, my wife and I use daycare. But and when I was a young father, there was a fear that my, my kids wouldn't see me as the parent when I dropped my kids off. But anyone who has kids knows that when you pick up your kids, they know you are their father or, or you are their mother. They just, they know it. And you have that responsibility, that sense. I think of democracy the same way. It's not something that you can give up. And because of that, mending makes so much sense because it's what you do with things that you don't throw out. It's what you do with things that you don't give up on. And so I love the metaphor that you guys are using. And I think it just, it just strikes me as the right way to approach, approach resolving problems that we have within democracy and a, a way to be more democratic, to be able to get to that next level of democracy that Robert Dahl prophesied one day we would be able to get to beyond just polyarchy to something that's more democratic. So I just went off on a bit of a tangent. I, I wanted to, to get a sense of the tradition of deliberative democracy as well. I would say that your book falls into that tradition. Yes, uh, absolutely, Justin. We use deliberative democracy in our book and we turn to deliberative democracy for ideas, for inspiration and for, for resources to, to understand how democracies can be reformed, how democracies can be mended. Uh, but I think maybe the way we use deliberative democracy in the book requires some further explanation. Because I guess partly we are all working in the tradition of deliberative democracy, Caroline, myself, and, and John as well. So there's an expectation also uh, from us as the authors of this book to say something meaningful about deliberative democracy, right? So I guess John already mentioned briefly before, when we talk about deliberative democracy, when we use the idea of deliberative democracy in this book, we want to go beyond the deliberative mini publics, which is the dominant way of understanding, interpreting and practicing deliberative democracy in our democracies. And as John also um, already mentioned, we don't want to say that mini publics are useless or irrelevant. They are, they are really important mechanisms, important interventions uh, to, to reform democracies as well. And they can also speak to these kind of systemic disconnections we are writing about in this book. But what we are doing is we are taking a broader perspective of deliberative democracy, which is known as the deliberative systems approach in literature, but it can also be called a macro deliberative approach. And when we think about the tradition of deliberative democracy, when we think about the scholarship on deliberative democracy, it initially started with this macro view of deliberative democracy. So when we think about the work of Jürgen Habermas, for example, he wrote about deliberative democracy as a broader communication process that takes place in the public sphere, in the media, in the context of hopefully parliamentary debates and in multiple other spaces as well. 
And in recent years, scholars of deliberative democracy taking this kind of a broader view of deliberation, they brought these kind of work under the umbrella of a deliberative systems approach. And I think our book aims to make a contribution to deliberative systems approach as well. So what do we do with this, with this tradition, with the idea of deliberative systems? I want to first of all say that one of the maybe nice things about deliberative democracy and about this tradition is that deliberative democracy is a normative political project. It is about the ideals that uh, our societies, democracies try to achieve. But at the same time, it's been a growing field which learns a lot from the practice. So there is a really nice communication dialogue between the normative theory and the political practice. So the field has been growing in constant conversation, learning from practice and how we can refine the normative theory by looking at the practice, by by undertaking more empirical research in the field. And our works, all three of us, we've been trying to do this in our individual works as well, using this normative idea, but also pushing this further by looking at the practice and what we can learn from this practice. In the book, we are doing something similar. We want to further refine also the deliberative democratic approach. And we look at the deliberative systems idea, how it is being defined, what are the key assumptions scholars make when they talk about a deliberative system, a functioning deliberative system. And when we take this normative idea and the political practice of the type of disconnections democracies suffer under, Caroline mentioned the three of them we are focusing on in the book, we sort of see a disconnection there as well. And we think we need to really study in depth the disconnections, the roots of the problems, and see how we can also make the practice speak back to deliberative systems idea. And here, one important, I mean, there are many key aspects of deliberative systems, and there is meanwhile a growing literature and a lot of scholarly debate around this idea as well. The key aspect of deliberative systems idea for us is the idea of connections. So for a functioning deliberative system, of course, you need multiple actors. Of course, you need multiple sites of discussion and debate. But unless these sides, these actors are connected to each other, we cannot talk about deliberative systems. So we we take the theory of deliberative systems, we look at the political practice, and what we want in, in overly simplistic terms say is that this idea is very useful. This idea can be used as a normative democratic ideal, but we need to focus on the way connections are forged. We don't think that deliberative systems theorists paid enough attention to the idea of connections, how connections are being made by the actors on the ground. And this fits really well then with our problem definition around the democratic disconnects. And what we want to do is that we want to look at how actors on the ground forge connections and how what they do can contribute to the well-being of democracy as a whole at the systemic level. And, And I think the key that you find for establishing those connections is the ability to listen. 
which is so often overlooked within society because we do practice deliberation on the macro level where we have the ability to speak and express our opinions. But so often the focus is on speaking and sharing your ideas and not enough on listening to what other people have to say. And I find it so refreshing that you focus on the listening component rather than the expression component. Can you explain what are the challenges that people have for listening well? So there has been a bit of a revival of listening in um, certainly political theory, people starting to recognise that in certainly in the de deliberative democracy theory that it can't just all be talk. We have to have skills in listening and that those skills in listening are not just about receptivity. We, we actually need to think harder about what does it mean to listen, particularly across difference. And I think one of the things in our, in our case studies that comes out, and I'll, I'll just speak to at least one of the case studies, but... This is the idea that, that listening needs to be also something that's practiced and also people need to feel that they, they're in a safe space to listen. So in, in deliberative democracy, there's a lot of push, I guess, to, to think about listening across difference. And one of the interesting things, I think, that comes out in, in, in one case study, which is looking at that disconnect between constituents and, and elected representatives... Um, and, and we know, you know, how divisive that, that context can be where people are either on one side or the other. And in this case study, we look at, at a community that really tried to forge a different path, which is to say, look, we want to firstly start having conversations about what kind of relationship we want with our elected representatives. So instead of starting from the, the position that we know where we need to go to and we just need to convince others and get them to listen, they created spaces which were called kitchen table conversations in in very sort of familial context in book clubs in in people's homes to basically start firstly opening up the conversation around how can we repair or or think about our representative relationship in this electorate and also to to afford people the gift of listening so so when when we talk to these community groups and citizens in this case study, what comes out is this amazing story of how people started to actually learn the art of listening. So it wasn't about trying to convert people or to get them to vote or to even start to politicise them, if you like. It was actually about just saying, look, what do you like about living in this area? What do you think needs to change? What are our strengths? And it started a conversation that was really about allowing people both to listen to others, but also to have that, that gift of being listened to. And then from there, they, they created um, a whole range of different listening activities with their elected representatives, and that there have been successive representatives in that electorate now. But it, it really did start at that very base level of actually allowing people to remind themselves what does actually listening mean when, you, when you're listening to someone who might hold a completely different view or they might share your view, but to stop and sit down and not just talk, but to listen. And I think you mentioned, you know, what is the most you know, challenging. I think at a fundamental level, the way our media systems work now and the way our our party systems work, it's very easy to just listen to people that speak the same language, political language. It can also be related to the idea of deliberative systems and the idea of 
trying to really understand what does the activity of deliberation involve? It's not only about talking. It's also about responding. It's also about listening. It's also about thinking. So I think this idea of deliberative systems, it makes us to think about multiple different sides, but also multiple functions of a democracy. And, the, and it also emphasizes the importance of listening. And elsewhere, we uh, had another paper with Caroline where we talked about the concept of communicative plenty, uh, which suggests that there are plenty of opportunities for our democracies to, to voice, to speak about our concerns, but not enough attention, not sufficient spaces for, for listening. So in that sense, it's a really central activity for, for democracies. And uh, we also use the listening in our case of knitting nanas against gas. And we, we show how uh, everyday citizens in, in informal spaces, just getting together and just, just being present and being reflective and listening to, to others can create these important spaces in, in, in democracies. I think it's important just within society as a whole. There's a lot of books within just popular culture right now. You've got Malcolm Gladwell wrote a bestseller, Talking to Strangers. You've got Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. People who work in business, in management, in sales, the most important skill you can have is the ability to listen to others. If you're in a position of leadership in anything, you need to be able to listen to your employees. You need to be able to listen to customers. And, and it relates back to democracy. You need to be able to listen to the people that you're working with. I, I find that business and democracy oftentimes interrelate. That's why I bring it up. And so I, I just think that the listening component is such an important skill that is so frequently overlooked because people just want to express themselves instead of realizing that you're going to have so much more influence if you, if you listen to people and understand what they're really trying to say. A, a lot of politicians already campaign on an ability to listen to their constituents, but it's obviously difficult to balance the interests and concerns of large groups. In your book, you give an example that you've already alluded to of Kathy McGowan, who was involved in V4I. She was able to approach her role as an elected official very differently. Can you explain what she did different when she was elected to office to understand her constituents? Yeah, I mean, Kathy McGowan came to power as an independent federal MP in the Australian Parliament, not because of Kathy per se, but because of a large community movement, the Voices for Indi movement, that, that effectively built a base. She came from an electorate where they're a very conservative electorate where there'd never ever been an independent stood and and the parties that had held that seat for over a hundred years had always been very you know conservative leaning either the Liberal Party or the national party so so she she had to work hard like all independents do to try and demonstrate that she was connected to the community. So she couldn't stand behind her party. Why did she choose to run as an independent rather than running running as a candidate for one of the other parties? 
Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I think, I mean, it's again, it's it's not Kathy. I mean, she was the person that ultimately stood forward. But her, the group, if you like, that, that really um, ran these kitchen table conversations that I talked about before, went out to the community to try and work out, you know, what, what is... What is local democracy here? What issues are we interested in? And they collected a, a huge uh, amount of uh, sentiments and inputs and they collated that into report and they took it to the current member at the time who was a member for the Liberal Party, so our, our um, Conservative Party here in Australia. And that local member at the time is reported to have said that, you know, like, I don't need to listen to this report. I know that people in this electorate aren't interested in politics. Thanks, but no thanks. And so this group was standing there with a, a quite a rich resource and had done a fair bit of constituency work for their member, and their member didn't appear to be receptive or want to listen, if you like. And so there was quite a moment, I think, of what the people in this movement tell me, to, to whether or not they wanted to actually even engage in this formal political game or the electoral system, because that that's not why they started the movement. The movement was to improve the existing condition. They weren't out to try and change the, the members per se. But when they got this kind of response from the elected member, they started to think, well, well what are our options here? You know, we can we can take this to the opposition party. We can take it to um, the Green Party. So in Australia, we really have two major parties and, and the Greens are kind of a minority party. The ma- One of the major parties is a coalition. Um, so this is a, a rural regional seat and, and is typically labelled as a fairly conservative place. And I think at the time, the, the electorate thought, well, actually, we, we can see that when there is an independent, they actually can demand and get a lot of, got a lot of resources for their community. So I think it was a risk they took. And other electorates have done it in Australia, not very successfully. But yeah, to, to their surprise, they ran a very effective grassroots campaign and, and Cathy McGowan won, won by, by a margin, a, a very small margin in her first election. And just getting back to your other question about, well, what did she do then when she was um, elected that was different? Well, she couldn't lean on her party. Um, she didn't have the resources of a party machinery behind her. Um, and so she had to work very hard to both listen to the community but demonstrate that she was listening. So she picked three or four key is- issues from those original kind of consultations or kitchen table conversations. And she ran her constituency office, both in her electorate but here in Canberra at Parliament House, like a community development office. I mean, I went to visit her and she had uh, white paper all around her office. She was she brought constituents into um, her office as, as volunteers. She tried to empower people to come to Parliament House to understand how it works. So she didn't promise that she was going to change everything, but she enabled people to come into this world of power that she had accessed to learn how things work, to introduce her to who the people, you know, if they're a small business, for example, you know, if you're interested in agricultural businesses, then go and talk to um, this minister. So she she tried to facilitate um, other people forming connections. So this is sort of the, a theme that runs through our book. We're not suggesting here that these small community groups do the mending all themselves, but they they trigger, if you like, like when you're mending a piece of metaphor, you know, a piece of fabric, you have these different threads that you can kind of weave through. And Kathy McGowan, in a way, was an effective mender. She didn't seek to just try and get a brand new piece of fabric. She actually tried to use and create processes through which she could bring her constituents both in, in their electorate but also bring them to Canberra. 
And the final thing that, that Kathy also talks about when I've interviewed her several times is she wasn't just listening and hearing, if you like, but she was actually acting. So she was delivering on what she heard. So so this actually enabled her to then get re-elected. So she could have done all all wonderful listening activities, but had she not delivered on some of the things she was hearing. So she worked a lot on better mobile reception, better transport, better health outcomes. And these were all things that people in the electorate started to see because they were no longer a safe seat. They were a marginal seat and that changed their resourcing outcomes. So it's it's not just a story of listening. It's a story of how one MP was able to really change the the resourcing outcomes for that region. And she didn't just get elected, she was able to get her successor elected after her, which is incredibly impressive. You said that was the first time that had ever been done in Australia for an independent candidate. That's right. So so this um this was in a way a kind of community driven selection process. So this community group Voice for Indi thought very hard about how they could Kathy was signalling that she might not stand for a third term and, and they just didn't want to, to go back into that, that party system. And so they thought, well, how, how, can, we, how can we hold on to this, this, keep this seat independent, knowing that it had never been done in Australia before um, at the federal level? And so they ran a, a, a very in-depth deliberative process, actually, where they brought um, about 300 of the campaign volunteers together and ran a day-long process where they stood three potential candidates that had stepped forward they, they put them through a kind of community and deliberative process. And, and in the end, they, the community and these candidates themselves decided that the best person to take that role would, would be Helen Haynes, and she accepted that, um, and she was re-elected. So it, it, the electorate of Indi has managed to remain as an independent seat, and Helen Haynes and the story of Cathy McGowan has now stimulated about 16 other electorates around Australia are currently looking at this kind of approach to, to doing politics. So it's had a very big um, ripple effect across our electorate, particularly not just in rural and regional, there's urban electorates, but it is, it's being watched because people are so fed up with the party system. Now, the organisation that was able to get her elected is V for I, I being Indi. Obviously, they're able to get opinions from lots of people in the community, but oftentimes the people most willing to speak are going to be very extroverted, people looking to be heard. How were they able to incorporate people who might be less engaged? Yeah, look, this is a, this is something I think all community groups struggle with, and I think they, in their reflective sort of interviews that that we've done, they do acknowledge that tapping into those really hard to reach corners of their community was difficult. At the same time, I think these because they started, as I mentioned before, from a position of listening as opposed to a position of conversion. They tried to bring people, particularly across the ideological spectrum, into those safe spaces. So they they weren't only talking to people who, who wanted wanted climate change or wanted certain issues. It wasn't an issue-focused discussion. It was actually, let's bring a whole range of different people who have traditionally voted across the spectrum together. And then they used those networks of those people to build other a broader network. So it was a, I mean, it's kind of the opposite to what happens in the mini public where there's ex- explicit efforts taken to randomly select participants. 
and that's you know to bring a big diverse kind of group of people to discuss usually an issue or a policy in this case the group really used their networks it was relational and of course we all know that networks can be of a particular type and exclude others and so what what they tried to do particularly so you know in australia we have compulsory voting so when when people of all walks of life turned up to vote and they do there was a lot of effort made at the polling booths to make the the voices for indi campaign if you like um, very accessible so they had you know a cake stall they had people playing music that was very colorful so it was trying to make politics if you like accessible friendly and they ran a lot of community events in and around the election so they had they had hubs on the main streets of all these regional towns so there's 20 or so regional towns in this area and they tried to make it accessible in the sense that come on into our shop front you know this is not this is not i'm not a distant political party i'm from your region and and they they were very successful as some political parties are with their branding but i guess it was refreshing and in that way it brought some people that may not have normally participated in politics the the third thing i think they did quite well was they actually they didn't expect everyone for example to go and do door knocking so if people wanted to participate, they allowed them to participate in the campaign or in the movement in ways they can. So some women, for example, got together and they made things. They made bunting, they made jewellery, they made craft, and they weren't interested in door knocking. Others came along and they were very savvy with the technology. So they tried to harness whatever people could bring. So it was a very decentralised political campaign to the point where they actually just enabled these local hubs, if you like, in these small towns to run the campaign the way they wanted to. So local people could see, oh, this this isn't just an initiative of that regional town over there. This is our campaign and I want to get involved in it. So it was local, relational, and I think they're looking for the next electorate at trying to do even more inclusive strategies. You mentioned the digital technology. There's a quote in your book where you say, without doubt, digital tools and platforms can encourage and enable new forms of articulation and connection in contemporary public spheres. However, their capacity to create connections across multiple publics remains limited. I thought that was interesting because a lot of people put a lot of emphasis today on digital. In your book, you put a lot of emphasis on those personal relationships how does digital fit in and how does digital not get us to where we want to go look i just think a lot of people in in the areas that we were working they've got great mobile reception and they're 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 connected absolutely in that sort of technological sense and they used it when they needed to but i guess I guess people felt that it was really important to meet face to face. It was important to be together and also to make political conversation and conversations about place in the place. And that, of course, they used Facebook and they used a lot of different technologies to try and get people to coordinate things. But I guess they created face to face activities such as, you know, barbecues and bike rides and social events to make the participation something that was actually joyous and social. 
So it wasn't just all about strategizing. And I think that was that was the main thing. And I guess, as we all know, technology can also feed division. I mean, I guess now we're now working in a world where the technology, particularly post-COVID, where a lot of people are using that probably more than ever. But I think in this time when they were trying to build a community movement across, you've got to imagine in this region where this was happening, and this is in the Indi, people didn't identify, I'm from Indi. This is a label, a federal electoral label. I mean, now it's got an identity. But up until that point, people were, you know, I'm from Benalla or I'm from this town or I'm from that town. So part of the work of this movement was creating an identity and that was about bringing people together. And I don't think they could have done that as successfully online. Yes, if you're talking about sustaining the movement, sustaining the energy created in those everyday contexts, I think it was very important for people to also get together face to face and and build build an identity, a collective identity in the face to face settings. I think one important thing here, I also want to add this to what Caroline has been telling us about the case of Indai. Our book also looks at uh, alternative forms of political participation. So we engage in our research with those forms of uh, political participation and trying to make sense of how everyday citizens make politics. And here, I think we engage with these two diagnoses that we see in democracies. On the one hand, that's right. So there is a growing citizen distrust in formal institutions and, and politics, such as political parties. But parallel to this, we also see a lot of citizen engagement. And this is beyond our particular case studies as well. We see the rise of, if you like, small p politics, everyday politics, alternative forms of political participation. And what differs these forms of these new forms of getting together political participation from from a conventional political participation is partly also their social context. People come together because there is a joy of coming together as well. So in these new forms of political participation, we see politics is personal. Yes, we see a confirmation of this this old mantra, but we also see that politics is social as well. So in that sense, it is important to get together face to face. And this is not to devalue the importance of online technologies, but to sustain the community energy. It is important to get together and it is important also uh, to make political participation socially meaningful, socially fulfilling for, for people as well. One of the groups that represents uh, being very social was the knitting nanas against gas. Can you explain what made the knitting nanas against gas different from other advocacy organizations? Right. So whenever we start talking about knitting nanas against gas, there's always a smile on people's face, which I like. So as as an effect, So we came across this particular group in the context of a broader uh, research project while we we were trying to make sense of an anti-coal seam gas movement in, in Australia, particularly in New South Wales. 
And this group is a group of everyday citizens. And I emphasize the term everyday citizens here because they are not necessarily activists or, or protesters in the way we understand protest politics and understand uh, the profile of an activist. Uh, so the group was established first in uh, 2012 in New South Wales in the Northern Rivers area. And today there are around 40 groups or what they call loops, nana loops across Australia. And these groups are connected with each other. What they do is that they, they protest the coal seam gas mining and other environmental issues as well by sitting in front of their local MP's office uh, regularly and by knitting yellow and black objects, which are the colors of, of danger. And at the same time, this group is political, but when we interview the members of this group, they are participating in this movement for personal reasons, and also they are social as well. So we see how political, personal, and social get blurred in a group like, uh, like Knitting Nanas Against Gas. It is possible to differ these groups from uh, classical advocacy groups in, in many different ways. First of all, I think they offer a narrative that people can identify, people can relate with. So their narrative is not about ideological differences, about party lines or these kind of uh, understanding of political differences. So instead, they, they bring some of the universal issues at the core of their narrative and engagement strategy. They, for example, symbolize the need for care, care for community, land, nature, or future generations. They represent a position where no one can say, I don't care about these issues. This, I think, helps to translate the technical coal seam gas-related, mining-related issues to, to something accessible and to something relevant for ordinary citizens. This is, I think, what differs them from a classical advocacy groups. They are the way they create their narrative around those universal categories of care and community. The other important aspect which I already mentioned that also links to the way they do politics, the, the way they participate in politics as an, as an example of alternative forms of political participation is that they make politics appear personal, but also social. So it's, it is also about getting together and having fun. So fun is a really important aspect of the way groups like Knitting Nanas Against Gas do, do politics and show alternative ways of doing politics. And this is something we see and try to capture in our book in the case of Indai as well in Australia. Also in the book, there are many different examples, particularly showing how the groups like Knitting Nanas use fun and humor as part of their political activities. And here we see... Do they really call themselves NAG? They do call themselves NAG, and they, they like that kind of effect as well. Yes, yes, they call themselves NAG. And when we talked to them, we, we interviewed 
many members of, of NANAS across three, four different places across Australia. And it's really interesting that some of these members of the group, they haven't met each other face to face, but they are using similar kind of tactics, similar kind of repertoires, trying to make local participation meaningful and transformative as well. They use fun and humor as a, in, in many different ways. So for example, they used humor as a coping mechanism too. So because they are dealing with a very stressful case of coal seam gas mining in their, in their region. The humor offers a way of dealing, coping with a difficult issue. At the same time, humor also plays an important role to bring the group together and to build solidarity and to, to emphasize their inclusive and welcoming nature as well. So the way the groups like NAC, the way they combine anger and joy offers a really unique way of participating in politics, offers a unique way of saying something new by using the resources and tactics they have and offers a... A, in, an innovative way of uh, saying something locally meaningful as well. In the book, you also talk about the British healthcare system and the ways that a bureaucracy can connect back to, I don't want to call them customers, but the, the patients or the citizens that are involved within the community. I feel like that it follows very much a trend within business and bureaucracy to look for, for customer input to shape their product offerings, shape how they do customer service. Would you call these efforts that involve a bureaucracy, that involve even businesses, do you kind of consider that deliberative democracy? And, and does that fall under mending democracy as well? I think for sure, absolutely, that, that can be a kind of genuine form of democracy. And it's something lots and lots of people uh, within and around these, these big bureaucratic organisations in particular uh, are passionately keen for that sort of meaningful engagement to happen. Sustaining this kind of engagement is really hard. And it's hard because obviously it's not an apolitical thing. And in particular, we're talking here about it's kind of the pointy end of, uh, of what makes liberation in the real world very challenging because these are organisations that have ingrained practices and they have entrenched interests and they have clashing values. And this, is, this happens internally, but also you know, other external actors who impact on them have you know, come into play. And it's about you know, resources. So it can be pretty intense. So I think probably the best way to kind of reflect on this is through the case that we cover in the book. And that's the case of the... NHS citizen. So this was a, an example, you know, of what, what we point to was a kind of really promising way of trying to mend that, that governance disconnect, the disconnect that citizens feel between their own experience of public services and, you know, the incredibly Byzantine complex way in which public policy gets made and happens. And so this was an example. The NHS citizen is an example of a, of a huge bureaucracy, one of the biggest organizations in the world, the NHS, England, trying to reach out in innovative ways. So a little bit on context here, this is around 2012, 2013, there was a big controversial health reform 
in the UK. And as part of that health reform, there was a suspicion, there was a change to the way the NHS ran. And there's a suspicion, a strong suspicion from lots of people opposed to these reforms, that it was a kind of thin end of a wedge of towards privatization of the National Health Service. Um, so maybe for your American listeners, this isn't immediately apparent, but the National Health Service, the NHS, is a you know, publicly run health service. It's free healthcare at, at point of service and is a kind of iconic institution in the UK. And, and you know, with the coronavirus of late, it's been, we've been out on our doorsteps clapping the NHS. Well, I haven't, to be honest, but people have been out on their doorsteps clapping the NHS uh, on Thursday nights for their glorious service. So it's this big iconic institution. So there's this controversy surrounding it and a little bit of institutional kind of ambiguity as to what was going to happen, how it was going to work after this reform. Uh, but one of the things with the reform was it brought on a bunch of new board members for the NHS England board. And some of them were really committed kind of community organisers and, and really passionate about that. And so I spoke to one and he was absolutely, you know, he was a man on fire. He was, he was adamant about this. He was an, a reformer. And he said to me, you know, this is one of the biggest organisations in the world. We have millions of, uh, I can't remember the word here, it's probably not patients, millions of service users out there. And we don't do anything meaningful to engage with them. But, you know, not on my watch, not anymore. And so he worked with some other really committed champions at the board level, uh, but also a number of people within the organisation. And then some other people obviously outside, some kind of, you know, build a kind of coalition to really push for reform uh, and to do something really innovative in this kind of slight context of institutional ambiguity. You know, how would this new organization work? So they did work to develop this really, really, and they didn't just want to do something superficial, right? They didn't just want to run a kind of citizens panel that would look nice and be tokenistic. They were really committed to doing something really stitched into the fabric of, of the organization. So they developed this really complex uh, systems approach. In fact, it was, wasn't modeled on, but it had real affinities with the deliberative system idea. And so they you know, had different channels that served different functions. So you, know, you use the web to kind of trawl and get all the conversations that were happening about the NHS already online on Facebook and, and elsewhere and kind of find that information to kind of generate ideas for, for what needs attention. And then some in-person you know, deliberation on these ideas and a kind of set piece to hold elites uh, to account. So it was this massive kind of investment in this huge infrastructure for, of engagement that was, that was all about, was way beyond the kind of cookie cutter democratic innovation. It was amazing. And the people involved were really, it was a moment, right? And it really did look like the kind of philosopher's deliberative system brought to life. Uh, but here's the, the point where the, you know, the point here comes in, right? Because while there were champions of this reform, there were also kind of handbrakes on it. People who felt pretty uncomfortable with something new and radical and dynamic. And in particular is that they didn't like that they weren't in control anymore. This inactive citizen, this kind of initiative, might kick things off that they didn't actually want to hear about or they didn't know how to deal with. And so this kind of internal politics within the organisation kind of kicked in. And other powerful actors were manoeuvring uh, to try and, well, to kill it, to, to raise concerns about it, to discourage engagement with it in the organisation and to, to choke off funding for it. Uh, and so these handbrakes, you know, these, these, people, these sort of anti-champions uh, eventually kind of won in this case, but not after, not after a bit of, of interest and excitement, but it, it, it petered out. So I think probably, you know, bring it back to your general point, democratic mending absolutely can happen in these spaces. 
that's really exciting actually. But the challenge in particular in these sorts of spaces is, is in sustaining and protecting them so that they are genuine, so that they're not kind of superficial, tokenistic. And I don't think there are no easy answers, certainly no easy answers yet. I don't think there'll ever be easy answers because of what's at stake, but it's a really fruitful area, I think, to keep, to keep looking at. It's common for people to say they don't want to take politics into work. The two things you're not supposed to talk about at work are going to be politics and religion, obviously. But there is no clear line that, that demarcates your, your life as a citizen from your life in your company. The, the impact that you have on a daily basis from whatever your job is impacts other people. It impacts society. It's part of democracy. The Athenians used to think of it that way. So my point is, is that I, I think everybody who's listening, some people have the time to go out there and form an advocacy group. Other people may be feeling like, hey, I don't have the time to do that. What's great about your example, though, John, is everybody who has a job that feels that they're overworked and they don't have time to do anything about it, you can begin to make those efforts in your career even. In the job that you've got that you're working 40 plus hours per week, you might be able to have opportunities to be able to apply these lessons that you bring so that you can have an impact, even if you feel that you don't have time outside of work and outside of family, do it through your everyday life. And it's not necessarily political. It's politics is, is how you relate to other people. You don't have to be talking about how you're going to vote while you're doing that. You're just trying to help other people through your job, listening to what they need and what they want, whether you work for government bureaucracy or whether you work for a company making a product, listening to people and trying to trying to bring in those different thoughts, trying to establish those connections, I think is important, which brings me to this final question for you. What steps can an ordinary citizen take to mend democracy? And most importantly, what would the first step if you wanted to mend or strengthen democracy? I don't think we're imploring ordinary citizens to do anything that they aren't already doing. But more to the point, we're kind of saying, look, ordinary citizens actually are already doing lots of extraordinary things that strengthen uh, democracies, uh, usually in ways that are, that are local to them. So the, uh, the Indi case that Carolyn's been talking about with uh, the NAG, case um, that Celine's been talking about, you know, that's kind of in their local area where they're going out and doing things, or it's on, on issues, particular issues that are important to them. So I briefly alluded to it there, but most of the people interested in you know, civil society actors, interested in British healthcare governance, don't really, you know, it's not political in the kind of big capital P sense, it's more concerned about particular services that affect them or their loved ones. Or again, with NAG, it's about a particular issue in their area. Uh, so they, they're going out and doing these things anyway, a lot of them. And I think our point is, you know, our kind of audience for that book is really people like us, right? It's the, the democratic reformers, people interested in this, in the public engagement sector, in the nonprofit sector, government. And it's about, I mean, someone mentioned earlier the kind of utopian thinking. Utopian thinking is useful. Yes, it's great. But actually, we need to pay much more attention to what these ordinary everyday 
mundane kind of things, these things that are happening, these connected practices of democratic meaning that are, that are all around us. So I guess everyday citizens don't have to do anything that they don't want to do. They don't really have to do anything new. The onus, I think, should be on people like us to explore and seed and support the ways in which ordinary citizens can engage in practices of democratic mending if they want to, right, to kind of make it easier. That's the key. I completely agree uh, with what he says about the ordinary citizens participating in, in politics already and doing the things that they, they are doing in, in very creative ways. I think when formal politics fail, citizens always find new innovative ways of practicing democracy and perhaps in informal sides. And when we think about the, when we talk about the problems of democracy, there is a tendency to blame citizens for not trusting politicians, for not participating in politics. But I think we have to look at the other side of the equation. Why do we talk about citizens not trusting politicians? Why can't we talk about whether or not politicians are trustworthy? So we have to think about the other end of these, uh, these types of diagnosis as well. We have to think about whether these spaces, these opportunities speak to personal needs of citizens. Do these opportunities provided in our democracies, do they speak to lived experiences of a lot of citizens? So in that sense, I think citizens do not need to do anything extra. It is the institutions, it's the political actors, it's the, the, the democratic reformers. They need to widen the opportunities. They need to look at the way citizens participate in politics and recognize, acknowledge alternative forms of participating in pol politics and harnessing those forms as well. So last week I was on the road uh, traveling around in some pretty disaffected areas um, of Australia, listening to communities complaining and, and passionate about the dysfunction of politics that they're witnessing, both in terms of corruption, you know, the integrity issues, but also just, you know, feeling disconnected themselves. And I guess I, I was traveling with some, some people who, who were trying to just, I guess, say to citizens, look, there's other there's other choices. So so I guess what I would encourage your would your listeners to, to sort of think about is the the citizens in Indi often said there's an I in Indi, and the I is about taking individual responsibility. And so if something isn't isn't working, then then what what is it in your um, orbit? Whether it's your school group, your um, PNF, your church group, your sport group, or or in your electorate, what is it that I can step into to change? And there are always, I think, in all communities, various options out there. And it's about either creating those community groups or joining something. But I guess what, I've, what we've witnessed in this book, and I think that's the sort of seed of hope that we're trying to put out there, is that there are extraordinary things going on from very, very, very small beginnings. And this is, I guess, a big challenge that we're trying to do across our democratic systems. And it's 
the integrity of that system is only going to get stronger if, if, we, if we mend in lots of different parts. So whether that's in our local sports groups or, or you know, in our workplaces. And there is a, a lot out there that people can do to, to start strengthening um, their connections with either their elected representative or, you know, or those that, that hold decision-making power and try to hold them to account. And the message, I guess, that, that we get from a lot of the people that we engage in our research is about trying to make the representative democratic systems that we all are existing in, make them work in ways that they were designed to work. Because there is a, a lot of uh, dysfunction in the contemporary systems that wasn't designed in. <laughs> and as John and Salem said, you know, that's, that's as much about democratic reform as trying to harness those creative moments, but also about citizens recognising where dysfunction lies um, and identifying what they can do in those moments if, if they wish to. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm just really impressed where we were able to coordinate everybody across three continents. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. Fantastic. The Democracy Paradox podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Oxford University Press for a copy of Mending Democracy. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.